Greetings and salutations, all you sportsmen and women out there and conservationists across New York State and the Fruited Plain. Welcome back to another episode of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport. I am your humble host, Rich Davenport, coming to you from not-so-sunny Tandawanda, New York. That's right, folks. Welcome back to another episode of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport, coming to you on Anchor.fm, powered by Spotify. You can get this podcast on Spotify and Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Beacon, Free Radio, Pocket Casts, and of course, Anchor.fm. Please help support this podcast, folks. You know, donate to the cause if you can. Uh, Two dollars a month, five dollars a month, whatever you can afford. You can donate right online on the website, and it helps me push back on the propaganda in the lamestream media while providing conservation news and commentary, along with sound science and conservation principles. Hey, you just don't get these in the uh, the mainstream media, folks. And you know, again, this is my show. It's my commentary. It's my opinion. And anything that I state here is my own and not reflective of any of the organizations I may be a part of. But if it is an official position from one of those organizations, I'll be sure to let you know. Well, folks, yes, indeed. The harvest has officially begun, folks. Uh, both the northern zone and southern zones have now opened early archery big game seasons, as well as most of the small game seasons as well, bringing hunters to the woods for that annual rite of autumn. And, boy, it is autumn. It is, uh, you know, it's right on time. we got a lot of rain coming this uh, fall. Uh, but, you know, it's it's uh, really, it feels good. You know, the, the daylight hours are shortening up. I know a lot of people aren't too happy with that. Uh, but, you know, that it seems like autumn was right on time. Uh, we are still waiting for a first frost, but, uh, you know, the hunting is in full swing. Uh, plenty of folks are having a good time, and deer management is now fully underway. And, you know, since the southern zone in particular has become far more forested than it was certainly back in the 50s when it was reopened to big game hunting uh, and throughout the 70s, you know, the use of tree stands has really grown tremendously. And, you know, while being a part of a hunter's tactics, uh, you know, to get up and out of the line of sight from the deer, even, you know, even the smell, too, you can get away, uh, you know, from that up in the air 15, 20 feet up. You know, hunters today, uh, especially in New York, more than ever are using tree stands in pursuit of white-tailed deer throughout all the seasons, not just in early archery. Um, you know, where some leaf cover makes concealment up in the trees more effective, more and more people are taking to those trees. And, you know, it used to be if you wanted to hunt from the trees, you had to build a stand in the off-season. And they're basically platformed stands in the crotch of a tree, often with two-by-four slats to act as ladder steps. And, you know, over the course of time, exposed to the elements, not to mention the ever-growing tree trunk, uh, dry rot, the platform shifting, nails rusting out of the slats, all of this you know, contributes to dangerous conditions for hunters. And checking your homemade stands each year was something hunters did, while others would assure the stand was fine year to year. Uh, yet high winds shaking the tree can cause materials to shift. A growing tree can do the same. And, of course, continual exposure to the elements does create rot. Today, hunters are not only blessed with far more trees to place a stand in, uh, but they're also the new modern metal ladder stands, uh, be they made of steel or, or aircraft-grade aluminum. Uh, and portable hanging and climbing stands make this an even easier and, in theory, a safer thing. But whether you're using a modern climbing stand or self-made tree fort, 
due diligence is needed to make sure that your stand is as safe as your experience can be and it's as secure as possible because you know accidents can happen and it's always smart to practice good tree stand safety you know <clears throat> in New York we've had a blessing in that you know with the the fine hunter safety courses that we do have in New York State uh, we've seen the hunter relating shooting incidences drop down to you know you know maybe one or two fatalities a year which you know at the high end before these uh, courses were mandatory you were looking at 30 40 50 different you know shootings that related or resulted in a fatality uh, that's not so today. You know, most of the, the accidents that happen are, are self-inflicted, uh, becoming careless with your firearm, but, uh, or, or be doing dumb things, you know, like, you know, hauling it up into a tree while it's loaded, etc. But, uh, you know, we do have a lot more and a growing, it seems to be a concern here about, uh, tree stands and the accidents that are occurring there. So, you know, we've already had our first accident. I'll elaborate a little bit more on that. But I wanted to review with you some of the safety aspects that you really all hunters should take, you know, to heart and, and try to practice. First, always, always, always wear and employ that safety harness. Yes, the safety devices can restrict some movement. Yes, the devices can cost a bit of money. But what is your life worth? Not just to you, but your loved ones as well. Use it climbing up and down. And when you're sitting, please, this obviously will arrest you, arrest the fall when it, something bad happens, if something bad does happen. And, you know, a fall from even 10 feet can be fatal or honestly worse. It can leave you completely paralyzed, never again to enjoy the hunt. Second, if you're using a climbing stand, make sure the climbing cables are in good condition, not corroded or rotting in any way. Replacement cables are cheap compared to the extended hospital stays or emergency helicopter flights. Check your stand and make sure it's in good repair. Third, if you're using a ladder stand that you keep set up year-round, always check the placement, the straps, the fasteners. The trees do grow and the posts can separate. You know, these things are put together. They're not just a solid 15-foot ladder. you got to put these things together. And, you know, as a tree grows... These things can separate, straps can rot, the uh, footing on the bottom, you know, can get unstable. And always check this before the start of the season. Replace worn straps, you know, maybe you need to take it apart and reassemble it. Uh, make sure you don't have anything bent, you know, something that could fall, you know, a tree branch can fall in the off season and, and, and damage that stand. Make sure you take care of that, and if you're, if you find something that there's a problem, you know, avoid using it, take it down entirely, replace the stand. If you're using a portable hang-on stand, make sure that your steps that you put up in the tree are secure and not wobbly, as one bad step uh, up or down can change your life forever, really. Uh, you know, make sure that, you know, your your egress up into the, to the stand and downwards, again, that is secure, that is not rotting away, that hasn't somehow slipped. Uh, you know, make sure that you check all of that, uh, you know, fifth. Try to avoid using those homemade stands. You know, like I said, they're prone to rotting. You know, shifting can change the structural integrity. Um, you know, they do cause damage to the trees. Uh, and with all the, the choices that you have now with uh, with aluminum and, and steel, again, you know, there's, there's really no reason to try to drag and, uh, you know, a bunch of lumber up and try to build this onto your property. Uh, that can be a, a, you know, very, very difficult uh, thing to check on with safety or you could uh, you know just assume that it's safe 
and uh, you know end up having a problem. Number five. Uh, or should I say number six, make sure your safety harness is also in good condition. Visual inspection for any frayed straps or stress on the lineman strap itself that can cause failure in the event if you do fall. Uh, you don't ever want to be surprised when you're, you fall, obviously, and you don't want your harness to fail. Make sure it's in good repair. Check it. If you did have a fall in it and it, it, it did its job, you know, it's really a one-time use. You need to replace that harness. Uh, you know, make sure you're, you're up on that. And number seven, for those who use a climbing stand or hang-on stand, be, be sure you choose the right tree to set up in. This is critically important, folks, and you've got to make sure that it is a living tree. You know, select a tree that has thin to moderate bark, relatively smooth bark. Um, a thick, heavy bark or flaky bark like the bark of a hickory tree should always be avoided. Um, this, obviously, when you try to lock into that, it can cause a slip. And it can cause you a false sense of it, it being locked in and secure. And, uh, you know, that's something that, that can obviously cause a problem. Uh, but it's also critically important to pick a living tree as well. And that's even more important today with uh, the ravages of the emerald ash borer doing its thing within the forests of New York State. You know, it, you can't really tell right away, especially if you're in, you know, the deep woods in the fall that all the leaves are down. You know, that dead tree may look just like a living tree, and it may look really inviting to climb, but the xylem and the phylum has been dried out in the, one of those dead trees, and that acts as the glue to stick that bark to the, to the wood underneath. And, you know, it could look alive, but, you know, when it's dried out, that bark can easily slide off the dried wood underneath it. So you may get up into the tree and then can suddenly plunge downward if the bark gives way. Always, always, always choose a living tree to climb up. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to check. If you dig under the bark a little bit, it's moist. If, you can, if it flakes right off the tree, you know, find a different one. It's incredibly important to understand that tree, stacks now, tree stand accidents do surpass shooting incidences in New York. And like I mentioned, in the New York Southern Zone, which began on September 27th, we did have our first tree stand accident fatality this season when a 58-year-old Warrensburg man fell to his death while climbing down from the stand after a day of archery. It's a good bet he didn't have his safety harness on while climbing. And I know a lot of guys, you know, especially climbing up, may not wear them. Climbing down, it may take you a little longer to get out of the woods, but you're going to, or get out of the tree, I should say, but you will get out of the woods, not lay there in a crumpled heap at the base of the tree. It's really, you know, at your most vulnerable is when you're going to be climbing. That's when the tree stand is moving, uh, or yourself, obviously, is moving, and you're, you're relying on steps that are in place. Um, you know, when, when you're sitting, it's, you know, certainly things can give way and the sleep factor can also get you as well. So always strap in, you know, we don't have claws. We don't have a prehensile tail to help us out folks, you know, wear that state safety harness strap in when you're up in that tree, make sure that you're, you're stay fully strapped on your way up and on your way down. And this will be avoided. Uh, this is the first accident. We hope not to see too many, you know, this year. Follow some of these safety tips, and, you know, you should be fine. I tell you, and this is, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's also a great time of year that, you know, we have the time of the original locavores. You know, people heard that term, that politically correct term, eat locally, a locavore. 
Um, those folks who source their food locally and, and, you know, this is the time that we truly love because we're out there harvesting the game. And, you know, there was a surprising article that appeared in the uh, Washington Post of all places touting the benefits of eco-friendly venison, uh, provided you hunt it yourself. And, uh, you know, it's it, uh, kind of a shocker to hear this from that paper, but this column by Tamar Haspel dated September 23rd, 2021. Um, the author touts venison as the most eco-friendly food on the planet if you hunt the deer yourself. And, you know, the benefits of hunting and harvesting deer are absolutely immense. Uh, you know, the landscape benefits when you reduce deer numbers, the other wildlife through survival that depends on the cover and similar foods that deer consume also depend on deer being in a healthy balance. You know, the ecosystems remain healthy when balance is there, but when the deer become overabundant, the damage that they can do to a, to a landscape is profound. And anyone who's ever seen browse lines in a forested area or seen their crops and gardens eaten down to the roots know this. Uh, Haspel, citing a study done in 2014 in New York, revealed that the impacts of deer browsing on above-ground vegetation were severe and immediate, resulting in significantly more bare soil, reduced plant biomass, reduced recruitment of woody species, and relatively fewer native species. It's a good thing to go hunting. The thickening canopy also, you know, it, it reduces the ability for uh, that ground cover to grow as the ever-maturing forests in New York increase that canopy and cut that sunlight off. Uh, <clears throat> you know, this is uh, not the first time we've seen this. Uh, conservationist Aldo Leopold uh, wrote in his 1949 book, A Sand County Almanac, uh, he wrote, Now I suspect that just as deer herds live in mortal fear of its wolves, so does a mountain live in fear of the deer. And as he watched wolf populations decline and the deer populations grow, he noticed the damage that was done on the mountain. You know, wild game, uh, you know, brings a much higher quality meat and, than any store-bought meat. It's free-range in nature. Uh, the animals eat natural forage, such as clovers, berries, and tree nuts, and, uh, you know, acorns and beech. They get no steroids. They receive no antibiotics or vaccines to keep the communally spread illnesses at bay, like in commercial livestock operations. And they're higher in vitamins A, B, and D, uh, with also higher levels of high-density lipoproteins, that's the good cholesterol, and very low and low-density lipoproteins, or the bad stuff. Uh, you know, that is absolutely fantastic, and it's, I'm glad to see that the, uh, that the Washington Post has, uh, you know, published this, and it's a very good thing. So next time somebody says hunting is bad, point them to that. That's just another reason why we need to be hunting. Well, folks, we're going to take our first break of the morning. Uh, kick back, get yourself a cup of coffee, stretch your legs, but don't go anywhere because we love outdoors with Rich Davenport. We'll be right back.
And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and sportsmen and women across New York State to We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport. We're back in our second segment here, folks, and, you know, we're, we're moving right along. I just wanted to, to uh, you know, bring up a couple of things here, uh, you know, in addition, that article in the, uh, the Washington Post, um, you know, went on to discuss that, you know, all of the uh efforts that the anti-hunters have done in including chemical contraceptives sterilizations and other forms of non-lethal population control methods those have all been a dismal failure but they also kind of you know forget to mention that those drugs can call cause painful side effects to the deer they can't tell us what's going on and it can also cause contamination of the meat you know, making it really unsuitable for human consumption and even other wildlife consumption from scavengers, etc. The nature's way, which is the predator-prey relationship, nature's way is always the best way. And, you know, sport hunting provides a responsible way to put good, wholesome food on the table. It is very eco-friendly, planet-friendly, and health-friendly as well. So I just wanted to mention that. That's, that's you know, excellent news, excellent news, great article. Um, you know, while we're while we're giving you the news here, uh, you know, we've got an EHD update, and uh, the DEC has released uh, additional updates to the uh, epizootic hem hemorrhagic disease outbreak that is now spread throughout the southeastern part of New York State. As of September 29th, the department has received reports of approximately 1,150 dead deer suspected of being caused by EHD. Some hunters in the impacted areas are starting to become a bit concerned that population levels in these impacted wildlife management units may uh, make it a good idea to pass on some of the does this year. Um, that observation may be premature, but this does underscore the caring that we hunters do have for the health of the overall herd. And just think, you know, archery season has just gotten underway in the southern zone. And these are in areas that are showing EHD outbreaks from those midge flies. That first frost, folks, that couldn't come soon enough. Hopefully it's on the horizon. Certainly won't be this week, at least not in western New York, where we've got temperatures that are going to be hovering in the 70s all week long. Uh, this coming weekend also marks the special youth deer hunt. That's right. This weekend is Columbus Day weekend where youths aged 14 to 15 may use a firearm to harvest deer under supervision. And in those counties that pass their local laws, 12 and 13 year olds now may also partake in this special opportunity. Erie County hunting families remain in limbo, unfortunately, as the uh, uh, anti-gun, anti-hunting urban Democrats continue to do damage to the community at large. Uh, the, the local law that passed the uh, Erie County Legislature uh, back in early September is yet to be signed into law uh, despite the public comment or the public hearing being held. And now we're moving up on, you know, two weeks at that mark. Uh, this is going to be this Tuesday marks two weeks from that passage. I don't know what is uh, uh, what the holdup is, um, you know, but again, they're going to slow walk this to do as much damage to the hunting community in Erie County as possible. They're short-sighted, they're, uh, they're political ideologues that we have running the show, and uh, you know it's, it's unbelievable that this is even uh, the case considering the fact that Erie County has more licensed sportsmen and women than any other county in New York. Uh, all I can do is you know remind the hunters that uh, you know, you need to make phone calls and support this if you haven't, shame on you, but you also need to remember this fiasco come election day. 
because that's the way you're going to create, uh, you know, change in this town and this county. Uh, right now, you're being run by urbanite ideologues, and they have no caring, it appears, for any of the people that live outside of the city of Buffalo. However, since the local law does take effect immediately once filed with the New York State Secretary of State, it may still happen. But really, Erie County is shown to be an embarrassment, and even the DEC in their last newsletter called us out as the last remaining upstate county that uh, exists to, to take this move. October 1 also marked the close of the DMP lottery, so if you haven't applied for one yet, um, you're basically SOL. Uh, but if you would like to get one, um, you still have a couple of options left. First, uh, the supplemental DMP issuance that usually takes place on November 1. Uh, for areas that didn't issue enough permits during the open lottery. Uh, if you did apply for a DMP but were turned down, see this uh, additional supplemental issuance is kind of twofold. Uh, for those who applied for a DMP but were denied a permit on their first choice, if there are any DMPs remaining in that wildlife management unit left to be issued at the close of the October 1 lottery, then those who were turned down may receive a tag in the mail as they go through and review to issue enough of those. Uh, they'll just run through and down the line until they fill them all. And it doesn't impact your uh, preference point if you were turned down initially, but then receive that surprise in the mail. Uh, the second is for those wildlife management units that never seem to issue enough DMPs. And that supplemental issuance on November 1st begins on a first-come, first-served basis. You have to go to a licensing agent to get one. There is no cost to apply for this second issuance. And I believe that also holds true for those who missed the open lottery period, where the fee to apply is $10. Uh, I think that's uh, there is no fee on that secondary supplemental issuance. But again, that's a first-come, first-served basis, and it's only in specific WMUs like 9A or 9F. Uh, those are, you know, in Region 9, those two are the ones that usually see this uh, uh, secondary issuance, and that shouldn't change this year despite the implementation of that September uh, antlerless-only season. Also, hunters planning that on, on going hunting out of state are reminded that New York State has some very stringent chronic wasting disease prevention laws and regulations in effect, and if you do plan on bringing your harvest back home, the meat must be free of any bone marrow and brain tissue in order to be allowed into the state, especially if you plan to hunt any CWD-positive state, which includes Pennsylvania. CWD surveillance in western New York will also be increasing this year due to the confirmation of this disease in Warren, PA, just across the border from Chautauqua County. Um, hunters, please do your part to make sure that introduction of this disease doesn't happen on the New York landscape. And although it's thought that CWD cannot be transmitted from deer to humans, let's just avoid that question and concerns that you know, negatively impact uh, deer management efforts by assuring we don't bring the infected animal parts back to New York. If you're bringing back your game, that's great. We're glad that you had a great harvest and you were successful. Bring it back deboned, please. Bring it back processed. And if it's going to be a, you know, you want to bring the head back, you might as well have the taxidermy work done in that other state and then let it then ship to you in the completed form. 
Uh, we got a couple of quick updates for you here. Uh, just one from Connecticut now. Uh, remember last uh, last episode I talked about uh, a new uh, state record white catfish being caught from Coventry Lake on August 20th. Well, folks, that was rescinded as the specimen was released before full examination could be done and identification was happening off of the photographs, which is very difficult to do considering the similarities between the white catfish and the channel catfish. And although state fisheries officials did announce that the record of 21.3 pounds, um, you know, was going to be recognized, several have backtracked on this identification. And for angler Ben Tom Kunis, this has to be disappointing. Uh, I'm sure he believed he was doing the right thing when he photographed and released the catch. Uh, the catch was also up for consideration as a new world record, but I'm sure that effort will cease as well. Easy come, easy go, right, folks? Uh, but this does show uh, that, you know, record catches, uh, you know, to be recognized, they're not going to be recognized lightly. And if you suspect you do have a record catch, it is best to hang on to the fish for full verification if holding that record is important to you. If it's not, of course, then you can go ahead and, uh, you know, let that fish go, take your pictures, and, uh, you know, maybe consider it for some catch and release uh, records that are, uh, you know, becoming more and more a thing. Uh, people are taking catch uh, pictures of their catches and they're reporting, you know, what type of uh, line that they caught it on. Uh, you know, it could be a, a record uh, for, you know, line test. Uh, you know, you may catch a, an ultralight record fish or whatever. Um, and a lot of those, uh, you know, will give you that catch and release uh, record or at least give you some recognition for that. But, you know, if you're going to set a state record or if you're looking for you know, doing something like that, um, you know, it, it, it does seem to be uh, something that you want to hang on to your fish for to let the biologists do a full sampling on it. Speaking of that, uh, it has been announced that uh, Lake Champlain is going to be seeing really soon uh, some uh, uh, Atlantic salmon surveys in the tributaries as the, you know, they were coming into the spawn. And the DEC is looking to collect genetic samples of these uh, Atlantic salmon uh, to try to better determine uh, and identify genetic markers that were placed in some of these stock fished a few years ago uh, to try to better understand and better shape uh, future stocking efforts and future, uh, you know, management efforts of this important species in Lake Champlain. Uh, that's going to be getting underway soon. And so if you see some, uh, you know, DEC folks and you're catching some Atlantic salmon on Lake Champlain, they may ask you to take some genetic samples of your fish. Uh, please, by all means, let them do that. They're, they're actually conducting uh, some research. Uh, this is planned research, and now the fish that have had genetic markers uh, placed into them are old enough to spawn. So now's the time to collect those uh, samples in the streams. And that's really what they're trying to do to get a better handle and improve the stocking efficiency rather than just say, we're going to, you know, drop X amount of numbers in and try to get Y amount in return. Uh, they're getting a little bit more granular. Obviously, the costs uh, do increase. They don't, never go down for stocking anything. Um, and, you know, with the repairs that need to be done on a lot of the different hatcheries, uh, you know, it, to maximize the potential and maximize the return. That's what's actually being thought about, folks. Uh, and, and with this genetic sampling, seeing where those fish are, you know, they know where those fish were put in, finding out where they are coming back to, if they're getting lost and they're finding different streams. Um, you know, all of that is going to be a part of this. So, you know, I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, you got some folks cooperating on that. 
And uh, on another note, uh, the department uh, DEC is working with Cornell University on a waterfowl contaminant survey uh, study that's wanting to be done. Uh, so anybody who's a waterfowl hunter, you may get invited to participate in some of these studies they they look to take uh you know if you're willing to you know give up a couple of different birds that you may have harvested throughout the season uh you know they're looking to collect uh to to measure contaminants not just the typical and traditional contaminants of heavy metals uh dioxins and pcbs and other things that have plagued this area for some time but they're also looking at the new emerging uh, contaminants such as pfas and pf OAS, PFOS, uh, they're both kind of in the similar uh, uh, families. These are the polyfloral and perfloral alkyl substances um, that have uh, typically been around for, for a long time. They're used in plastics uh, uh, production. They're used to make uh, pizza boxes and dyes and things such as that. It's a critical and key ingredient in aqueous film forming foam, which is a firefighting uh, substance used to put out petroleum fires and battery fires and things such as that, which is a known uh, problem. Uh, you know, obviously in the village of Mayville, um, back in 2020, they had to dig a few new wells or at least one new well uh, as their three existing wells showed PFAS contamination. Uh, so that's underway too. They're asking, uh, you know, hunters to cooperate. Uh, you may get a letter, you may get an email, and uh, you can register and sign up to be a part of that so we can start measuring this stuff a little bit better. Oh, I tell you. Well, folks, we got uh, coming to the bottom of the hour. That fastest podcast in history has got two episodes in the books. But don't go anywhere, folks. We Love Outdoors will be right back. Welcome back, sportsmen and women and conservationists across New York State and the Fruited Plain. Welcome back to We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport coming to you on Anchor.fm, powered by Spotify. Ah, oh, well, we're, we're, we're now moving right along here, folks. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so much going on. Uh, you know, we've got... Uh, you know, part of the fall is not just a big game hunting, but we also got migratory birds that are coming into the area, uh, starting their migration from Canada down to South America, down to Mexico, um, down to the Caribbean in some cases. And, you know, these migratory birds put on a fall shore, a fall show rather, uh, that many bird watching enthusiasts also take advantage of. And, you know, while, uh, you know, we're, we're taking to the fields in the woods, you know, the waterfowl hunters are also gearing up for the first split of the season and looking forward to the start of those annual migrations of ducks and some geese. Uh, but bird watchers are also looking forward to this time of year and uh, 
you know, they flock to the Great Lakes areas as well as national refuges like Iroquois and Montezuma in central New York um, that draw bird watchers and hunters alike to enjoy these spectacular migrations and large numbers of birds that we only see this time of year. The timing of the migration, you know, typically depends on the species of waterfowl and sometimes ice cover up north, especially on Georgian Bay. But many hours of enjoyment and awe have, have been had every season by hunters and nine hunters alike when these big flocks of birds come in. I mean, it really is tremendous. And while we report our harvest through the Harvest Information Program, something required each year to hunt waterfowl and other migratory birds in New York, uh, calling the HIP information line and securing your HIP number or doing so online for free, bird watchers also report their observations to avian research facilities like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Uh, these observations and harvest information, both used uh, in, in, to complement each other, um, help to shape population estimates, uh, the health of specific species, understanding the timing of migrations, and help focus needed attention where declining numbers of certain species may be noted. Uh, so, you know, you've got these are conflicting sometimes and sometimes competing interests, but they're all kind of happening at the same time. And we want to make sure everybody is, you know, aware of this and, you know, enjoyment of uh, our resources can be maximized to the fullest potential for everyone while uh, minimizing, obviously, those, those, uh, those conflicts between uh, user groups. And, you know, there's, their user groups are all over the lot. You know, I, I use the migratory birds, and typically that's not going to be something that conflicts as they're going to be, you know, sitting on platforms that are designed, especially in, like, federal refuges where hunting is going on. They've got special stations that are set up for bird watching, and there's no hunting allowed in those areas. And then you've got the hunting blinds that they do have and areas that they intend for hunting, which are far off the beaten path that, you know, you typically need to either hike through swamp or, you know, portage your canoe in and, and get in and out that way. Uh, so waterfowling is typically not something that is, is seeing a big conflict. Uh, but when you're looking at hiking and trail riding and things such as that, there's a lot of leaf peepers this time of year. And, you know, our, our leaves right now are starting to approach peak in the southern, southern tier. Uh, you know, you've got another couple of weeks of that going on until they really start to, to color out and drop. Um, but these conflicts do happen. And to minimize that, uh, you know, it's just it's it's wise if you're a non-hunter uh, to understand that these seasons are now underway, hunting and trapping seasons, and this is necessary wildlife management. And it's a good idea to remind the non-hunting community to be aware that these activities are now underway, and you can help yourself by remembering a few of the following things. You know, number one, hunters are currently a field, so keep the trail hiking and riding to a minimum in the state lands like multiple use areas and state forests. When it comes to state wildlife management areas, those are lands that are designated first and foremost for wildlife management activities. That's hunting, that's trapping. And, you know, the trail riding or hiking on those lands are actually prohibited, especially especially during the hunting season. So if you like to take a hike around, let's say, Clear Lake Wildlife Management Area down in Collins, New York, you need to wait till after the hunting seasons are closed, folks, because this is what the land is there for. It's not there just to specifically recreate however you want to. Uh, you know, you can go to a state park 
And, you know, if you're enjoying our state parks, you know, also be aware that these state parks, many of them do allow hunting as well, but there are designated areas within the state parks that are no hunting allowed. Those are typically in cabin and camp areas. Uh, those trail areas are designated as off-limits, and, you know, like Allegheny State Park, that's about 5,000 acres of land out of a 65,000-acre park where, you know, you don't want to you, you can hike all you want. They've got plenty of trails there, and you're not going to interfere with someone who is out there engaged in wildlife management activities, also known as hunting. Um, if you plan on hiking in the woods, um, you know, please consider donning blaze orange or blaze pink, vests, jackets, hats, etc. Be visible to those who may be hunting in the vicinity, whether they're an archer or whether they're a gun hunter. Um, you know, be visible. And, uh, you know, try to remember that there may be hunters in that area and, and use your use your noggin. Uh, if you are intending to walk your dog, which is ill-advised, be sure to put orange an orange vest or something orange on Fido as well and keep your dog on a leash. You know, dogs that are seen off-leash running deer are technically fair game to be shot in New York State. And if you're just walking around in an area, a wooded area that does have hunting going on, and you've got your dog running around, you know, off leash, you know, that dog could be, you know, mistaken for a wild dog or, or a dog that's just got loose and is running wildlife. And, you know, maybe even in some instances, depending on the species of breed of the dog, you know, that may be, you know, mistaken for, you know, something like a coyote or maybe even a, a, a mangy looking fox or something, and someone may take a shot at it. Um, you also have, you know, trapping going on. And if you keep your dog on the leash, it reduces the, uh, the potential for having a dog actually get caught up in a leg hold trap or maybe get their head caught in a conibear trap that's, you know, been placed for raccoon or, or for a coyote. Um, the only way that you're going to keep your dog safe is if you keep your dog safe yourself. Put it on a leash. The leash laws are there. This is wildlife management season going on. And, uh, you know, don't let your dog fall victim to something uh, that could be avoided with it being on a leash. It's your pet. It's your responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the hunter to caretake for someone else's dog. So please keep these things in mind. And, you know, the public lands, if we're all hunting public lands and we're all enjoying the public lands, that enjoyment will be a lot better, and it'll especially be better for you folks that are out there enjoying the trails, not hunting and such. But remember, hunting seasons are happening right now. The weather is going to be turning sour, and, uh, you know, it's, it's best just to avoid those areas uh, and wait till the hunting seasons are done. Let the wildlife management happen. Now, uh, you know, for those hunters that are hunting on public land, Try to get away from those marked trails. That'll reduce your chances of having your hunt ruined by a day hiker. Everybody needs to use their noggins. You know, go further than 50, 60 yards, uh, you know, away from your traditional areas. Uh, you know, take a long walk in the woods. Get up, uh, you know, out of the beaten path. You're sure to see more wildlife anyhow, as, you know, day hikers and such will put that scent in the woods that will put the deer on, uh, on alert and uh, make it a lot more difficult for you to actually enjoy that hunt. So, you know, be aware. Let's coexist, folks. Uh, horseback riders, etc. Um, you know, try to stay off the trails this time of year. You know, you've got a lot of small game hunters are out there, too. And the last thing you need is your, your, your uh, horse startled by uh, the, the report of a shotgun. And, uh, you know, then that horse might, you know, bolt off the trail, take a bad step, wind up, you know, wind up lame or worse. Uh, you know, be smart. This is the time of year when hunters are out, folks. Let the hunters be hunters.
uh, give you some other reports. We're going to switch gear real quick to, to fishing, you know, even though, uh, you know, the woods are getting all the attention because the hunting seasons are in full swing. Uh, the yellow perch bite is on fire right now on Lake Erie in depths of 60 to 70 foot of water. Uh, you know, the emerald shiners are available. You know, if you can't collect them yourself, you can get them in the local bait shops like Russ's Bait and Tackle down on Niagara Street. Uh, they typically have a supply of emerald shiners. Uh, call ahead to see whether or not they have air. Uh, you know, oxygen tanks are kind of on the light uh, side right now. And if they're out of air, they can't give you the airbags. Uh, but, you know, if they did get their uh, air tanks in, they, they may be able to do that for you. So you can buy your bait a day in advance. Uh, but the perch are biting, and I'm getting reports now that you got some strong king salmon activity now happening in some of the tributaries. Oak Orchard especially, they're showing reports of, uh, you know, fish all the way up to the Oak Orchard Dam. Uh, the lower river is seeing fish. People are, are catching them up at the power project all the way to Devil's Hole now. And the runs are intensifying. I'm sure that 18 Mile Creek, Old Cot area, all the way up to Burt Dam is now starting to show some fish. Um, so now's the time to really start uh, honing in on these fish. Uh, you know, this season is, is going. There, there's still some walleye activity happening. Uh, you know, anglers are reporting that they're picking up fish in the 70 to 80 foot depths off Cataraugus Creek and west. And, uh, you know, the bass season is also picking up pretty good as those bronze backs are feeding heavily in advance of wintertime. So, you know, you've got some really good activity going on, really good opportunity if you're a fisherman. And especially on lakes, uh, you know, uh, Chautauqua, uh, where you're now starting to see that fall kick in with the muskellunge. Uh, musky season is picking up. You know, most guys will swear by night fishing this time of year, but the musky are picking up activity as that water temperature drops. And, uh, you know, big trophies are coming out as they're fattening up for uh, the, the winter and uh you know, that that activity is starting to tick up. And again, you know, a lot of that activity with the volatile weather that we have typically in the fall is favorable for activity for muscalunge. So, you know, really this is the typical time of year where you're going to see large fish that are being caught. And just because the hunting seasons are going on doesn't mean that the hunting seasons uh, are the only things going on. Fishing is still in prime time right now, folks. And, uh, you know, you're looking at some good brown trout and rainbow trout runs as well. Uh, the rainbows are moving into the streams off of Lake Erie. They're moving into the streams in Lake Ontario. It looks like it's going to be a, a great fall season for you anglers out there as well. And, uh, you know, again, just uh, making sure that you're aware in that, you know, Olcott uh, at Burt Dam, uh, 18 Mile Creek, right through Olcott, you're looking at uh, water releases from the dam periodically each day to draw fish in with that current. Uh, it worked out really well when this was done on the Oak Orchard Creek. It's now also being done on uh, 18 Mile Creek, and that should be improving the runs there. We know the fish are staging there, and I'm starting to get reports here and there that fish are showing up in better numbers than it seems like they have seen in the past. Um, so get out there and enjoy it, folks. You know, you should be able to, to float some skein up at, uh, in the harbor itself. Uh, you know, make, make sure that you're aware, however, that the, uh, the piers off of Olcott Harbor, right at the mouth there of the, of the creek, they're undergoing some construction. Uh, they're, they're being reinforced with riprap, and uh, a, a breakwater is being put out uh, to kind of, you know, break the waves that come in on a northerly wind. Uh, 
you know, from the harbor itself to try to better protect the harbor from the erosion from higher uh, water levels and, uh, you know, winds when they buffet the uh, the shores, those waves buffet the shore and buffet that inside harbor there. So the, right now, technically, those uh, piers are closed for construction. Uh, you know, I know guys are getting out there at night. If you do get out there, make sure that you're, you know, being respectful. Don't leave garbage all over the place. Don't leave beer bottles, you know, whether you're using them as strike indicators or not. You know, if you carried it in, carry it out. It's a real simple thing. Um, you know, the fishermen get a bad, you know, rap and a bad reputation because, you know, all it takes is one guy and it spoils the entire area visually and, uh, you know, obviously uh, for the wildlife itself, it's just really a bad look. It just takes one guy leaving their stuff there and every fisherman gets painted with that. So carry it in, carry it out, please. But these, uh, you know, the fish are running right now. Everything is happening. Uh, it's the fall. It's the, the, the active time of year. And, uh, you know, just because you got the hunters out there, you know, it might mean, you know, you have less pressure in the streams and less pressure on the lakes. Uh, so, you know, now is a great time with, with, uh, with everything happening in advance of winter to get out and fish and uh, take advantage of that, uh, that big binge before winter. Uh, you can't really beat it, folks. And it is, uh, you know, it's just a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, time of year right now that we have. Well, folks, three segments are now in the can. That's right. The fastest podcast in history is taking another break for the morning. Uh, but we're going to be right back. Don't go anywhere. It's Rich Davenport, and we love outdoors. It'll be right back in a few minutes. Welcome back, sportsmen and women and conservationists across New York State and the Fruited Plain to the final segment of this episode of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport. I am your humble host, Rich Davenport, coming to you from Soggy Tunda, Wanda, New York. And boy, I tell you folks, this is just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful start to the, to the hunting season, although we are a little bit wet today. Uh, you know, we do have some really... Uh, uh, you know, really nice uh, temperatures anyhow. Um, th that moisture out in the woods is going to quiet things up a bit for you deer hunters. So, you know, at least the squirrels won't drive you nuts, but you better be on point because those deer will sneak in silent on you. Yes, and with that water, you know, I wanted to also mention that, um, you know, now is the time of year when, uh, you know, the state launches, the state marinas are now, you know, telling folks that you got to, you know, think about pulling your vessels and in fact, I did get a report that the state uh, marina down at Sunset Bay um, asked the uh, the slip holders to get their boats out a little bit early this year. It's kind of uh, kind of surprising. The uh, the marina season typically runs through October 15. It's a May 15 through October 15 season in New York, and apparently this year the state asked all the boat owners to get their boats out of the slips that they paid good money for by October 1st. I don't know why that was the case, but. Uh, 
you know, maybe it had something to do with uh, COVID, COVID, COVID or something. I don't know, but that's that's terrible. Uh, in other uh, news, the, uh, the, the folks uh, down in Chautauqua County uh, are advising uh, the residents that and boaters of uh, Chautauqua Lake to get their boats and get their docks out of the lake uh, by October 20th as uh, that's when they're planning on to drawing down the lake level for uh, the wintertime. And, uh, you know, it's although it is a natural lake, it's not a reservoir. They can somewhat control uh, the water levels at the uh, dam over on the Shattuckoin down in Jamestown. Uh, they will open that up and allow more flow out of the uh, Shattuckoin, out of Chautauqua Lake, to lower the lake by a foot or so, maybe a little bit more. And they do have some high water this year. Um, Drawing that down to get it down to a level where you're not going to see any problems during the winter time, during you know, with uh, potential runoff and flooding, uh, you know, that's something they do every year, and they're advising the the boaters this year to get everything out by the 20th, as the water levels may get a little bit low. Uh, and may be difficult to get your boats out. Um, obviously, the docks and such, uh, you know, you can't be mooring up to your dock. If you, you're losing that much water, uh, it could uh, cause a problem with you if you're tied off to your dock. Uh, you know, maybe even cause a little bit of a problem with boat lifts and getting your boats wet, you know, from the boat lift. So October 20th is when they want that done. Uh, we're going to switch gears here, folks, because, you know, uh, we've still got this endless beating of the drum uh, for all this uh, green energy and alternative, alternative renewables and all this nonsense. And even though in Washington, D.C., uh, the Kabuki Theater in Congress uh, wound up, uh, you know, delaying, if not totally killing, the Build Back Better BS uh, that was this $3.5 trillion uh, budget uh, deal that uh, the Uber left uh, wanted to get in uh, play to, to fund all their socialism and, and uh, you know, put people uh, behind the eight ball with you know, incredibly high taxes. Um, you know, that there is part of this uh, bizarro world approach here and bizarro world push, uh, you know, by these uh, greenies in name only, as I like to call them, the genos. Uh, they're continually pushing mandates uh, to eliminate affordable functional energy sources, cheaply petroleum fuels, and uh, the deep blue disconnected from reality states like California and New York continue their march off the cliff towards the lifestyles of the Amish by implementing mandates for all vehicles, at least cars anyhow, uh, be sold that are 100% electric vehicles by either 2035 or 2040 as their random numbers disconnected with reality um, that, you know, are being driven, uh, you know, by the fear of, of global warming and climate change that is uh, a fabricated crisis. Um, and this depends on, on uh, you know, a lot of misinformation and a lot of ignorance by the people. Um, but there are a lot of realities concerning electric vehicles that are clearly missed, just like the realities of wind and solar energy, go figure, that need to be understood. Not to mention the realities of emissions from vehicles today, which are far more efficient, far less polluting. They're nothing like the, uh, the vehicles that we had in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But, you know, we've got this imaginary crisis that the genos dream up just to get dig deep into your pocket and restrict your ability to live and travel freely. That is your right as an American citizen. First, 
the obvious infrastructure challenges. We just don't have the infrastructure built out right now to support electric vehicles. We don't have charging stations all over the place, and most of the charging stations that are becoming available, they're not typically found in the, the gas station uh, environment, but they're being found at you know places of employment where they may have a half a dozen uh, charging uh, parking lot you know, parking spots, I should say, um, and they're also being uh, uh, offered like some retail stores like Walmart and Target and some shopping malls. However, the stations are very limited in number and can't possibly scale up to provide more outlets to cars to plug into. The charging time is really the big problem here. You know, when you can pull up your vehicle today and you've got a, you know, a tank of gas, 20 gallons, 30 gallons, you're getting 20 miles to the gallon, you may have a 400 mile range, you know, it takes minutes to fill your tank. What, five minutes? And then you're on your way. Most electric cars, however, you know, they need at least... 30 minutes or an hour and those are the fast charging chargers in order to get a charge on your batteries sufficient enough to carry you through uh, you know this is this is why are the gas stations you know they have very few pumps you know you may have five pumps six pumps you know 10 pumps 12 pumps whatever but every five minutes they can handle another vehicle whereas at least 30 minutes to an hour before that charging station is available for the next car. That's a big problem, not to mention the fact that, you know, with a 200-mile range to get, uh, you know, 30 minutes to go 200 miles, that's obviously cutting down on your ability to travel where you want to by default. It's absolutely ridiculous. The more range you desire, some, some vehicles have higher ranges, but they're you know far more costly in the battery packs that they have. Those lithium-ion battery packs uh, you know, are, are, are not cheap. And the more batteries you have to give you more life and more range, well, the co more costly they are to you know, purchase and to replace when they go bad. Now, there's also some other things, too. You know, towards the end of a charge on a battery, the, the performance begins to suffer. And that's really felt in terms of acceleration. Uh, you know, so when you're having a drop in power, you know, and you're running on the thruway, and all of a sudden you need to accelerate and the juice just isn't there, that can become dangerous. And there's not much warning about that. It's just that drop in power happens, and now you got to find a charging station before you lose all power whatsoever. And then you have to wait at least 30 minutes to get a sufficient charge. Really? That sounds like a lot of fun. How about the operating temperature? You never hear about that, but batteries have an optimal temperature, an operating temperature. You know, that's going to be in the, you know, the 50 degree to 75, 80 degree range Fahrenheit. When you have cold temperatures like we have in the winter, or it's sweltering hot, that discharge is going to be, you know, either you're, you're not looking at as much electricity coming off when it's a frozen battery, and you're losing a lot of electricity when it's hot. So that's going to impact the life of the uh, uh, the battery itself. And just because it says you might have 200 miles in, in standard range, the fine print is going to tell you that's based on a certain you know rate of speed, a certain rate of travel, and a certain operating temperature. That is the fine print. So you just might find out that your 300 mile range is actually only 175 miles, you know, in uh, in the winter time or in the you know the heat of summer. You also have to look at what you have in terms of the draw on that 
uh, that battery system. Uh, you know, you're uh, running a lot of things today. It's not just the, ener the energy being used to power the, the motor. That's also being used to power your heat or power your air conditioner. How about your navigation systems? Your steering is all electronic. Um, your, your suspension systems, your braking systems, those are all electronically governed. Those are all consuming uh, electrical energy as well. It's not just the motor that's consuming your power. It's an amazing thing. It's kind of like on the wind turbines. You know, they tell you all this stuff about how many homes it can power, but they don't tell you that, you know, number one, when the wind isn't blowing, you're not powering any homes. But there's the other little dirty secret is that it costs electricity to operate these wind turbines. They have to turn into the wind. That's an electrical control. Now, that's an electrical motor. You've got the aircraft warning lights that are flashing. That's electrical. Those things are consuming power. You have the braking system in the nacelles that are governing the speed and the spin of those turbines to try to give as smooth a spin, as smooth a generating of electricity as possible. And that takes power too. Not to mention all the different controls and sensors that are relaying the feedback back to the operator's human machine interface, which is your computer system that's providing a graphical interface of of everything that's going on, you know, what's your gear lube temperature? What's the gear lube pressure? What's the angle that you're into the wind? Uh, you know, what's the speed? How much braking is in play? How much governing is in play? Uh, these things all consume electricity. So it's not just when it's spinning, it's giving you all of their electricity. It's consuming quite a bit of its own power, effectively cannibalizing what it's going to sell. And it's pretty much the similar thing with an electric vehicle. It's not just your motor that's consuming all the electrical energy in that battery to, you know, propel your vehicle. It's also the other things that you use in the vehicle. You know, you've got your OnStar system. You've got your stereo. You've got your vent. You've got your heat. You've got your AC. And like I said, you know, your steering is not rack and pinion anymore. Your braking is not just the pneumatic brakes pushing on it and, you know, you're... You know the the brake pressure then you know pushes that caliper and gets that pad on your on your on your uh, on your disc. No no no. The rotor is not uh, you know and the the pad is not no longer something like that. This is actually electronically governed and it's more efficient and it, it's supposed to be anyhow. And that's consuming electrical energy as well. That's going to impact the range of your vehicle too. And then, of course, you've got the life of the battery pack itself. You know, anybody that deals with batteries knows that the life is, you know, what's printed on the package is not necessarily what you realize in the real world. It depends how often it's being discharged and recharged. Is it being fully discharged, then fully recharged? Did the batteries create a memory because you charged it, in, you know, incorrectly or not long enough? All of those things that comes into play that doesn't come into play with a with a, a typical gas or diesel engine that needs a break-in period and then you're good to go just change the oil every three thousand miles electric vehicles also are not going to replace heavy diesel trucks, heavy equipment for mining, and manufacturing. So this is really limited to residential cons and consumer mandates. And, you know, this is similar to the, to the electrical energy thing. Residential only uses approximately 3% of the total electrical energy produced in the United States. When you look at transportation and the total of petroleum-fused fuels used, that's really not even 18% residential. Yet here they are trying to tackle 18% while leaving the balance, the 82%, which is industrial and, and manufacturing, totally alone. They're targeting you 
and they're not moving the needle at all because it's a very minor part of the whole. That's the truth that they're not telling you. And yet 97% of the electrical energy that is being used is industrial, and that's not going to be harmed. And now when you're going to add additional demand onto this infrastructure, well, now you're, going to, you're trying to reduce that you know, 3% already. You're now trying to get that down to 1%, I guess. And now you're going to tell everybody they have to use electric cars? It is absolutely ridiculous. Only a Geno, a Greenian name only, will find any of this making any kind of sense whatsoever. But there you have it. The only thing that it's going to do is cause you problems, cause you issues, cause you uh, hardships in able to move around and able to, uh, uh, you know, recreate and, and uh, you know, work where you want to, traveling, etc. And, you know, this is just, they're not telling you the truth, folks. They're not telling you the truth at all. All to address a problem that doesn't exist, that is a fairy tale. And that's the real truth, folks. Carbon dioxide, again, that's plant food, and we don't have enough of it in the atmosphere to make any kind of worry whatsoever. Well, folks... That's going to do it right now for this week's episode of We Love Outdoors with Rich Davenport. I know the fastest podcast in history is coming to a close today, but I want to tell you, you know, don't worry about a thing, folks. Those wind turbines aren't built yet. We're pushing back on it. You still can get energy that works, but stand up, folks. We've got the harvest. We've got fisheries going on. Stand up for your rights. Make sure you protect this for the kids not yet born. And folks... I'll be back next week, same back time, same bat channel, God bless.